1: Ah, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us and for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to some information that actually really matters, skip the caterwauling and use all of it to try to better discern the times we live in, which when you think about it, it's really what you're supposed to be doing, trying to consume news media and social media and culture and politics. You know, If you're not trying to make things better, what are you actually doing with it? um let's start here and talk about labor in america for a minute and unionization in america and workers in america there's been a lot of headlines about labor and unions and there's going to be a lot more coming up in the coming weeks i suspect this is one of those issues that it pops up in the news we have a news item on it or we have a debate about it and it gets ran through everybody's priors and it gets buzzworded pretty hard and then whatever the current issue or status or whatever brought it up in the headlines in the first place dissipates over a week or two ago and then people just kind of let it go by and then we come back to it again and we just kind of do this lather, rinse, repeat thing when it comes to labor in America. Labor in America is changing dramatically. Um, This is one of those things we learned during COVID where the service sector part of our economy and the vast majority of our economy is service sector, believe it or not. Folks really started paying attention and maybe a lot of folks first got their awareness of how much the service sector and labor gets affected by things because where you had, you know, schools shut down, businesses shut down. I've told the story before when we covered COVID, the elementary school and the high school are right beside each other in the district I live, the elementary school, both of my young children went to and the high school, both of my young children went to and go to. They're right beside each other. Directly across the road is a shopping center. Big, you know, the anchor store for the shopping center is a grocery store. There's McDonald's. There's other fast food places, you know, typical little shopping center directly across the street. In fact, a lot of the kids walk from the high school across the street to the shopping center and then meet their parents later or go to Starbucks or go to McDonald's or whatever the case may be. It was a juxtaposition of which workers were quote unquote essential and which ones were not because the schools were shut down for 15 months in this particular county. They just shut them down and kept them shut down. And a lot of people's jobs had restrictions on it, but all the same people that went to the schools every day were seeing each other at the grocery store every day and at the McDonald's every day. And it was a weird juxtaposition. And the workers at the grocery store and the other stores that surround A grocery store. They all still had to go to work, and they all had to do what they needed to do. And it was a living reminder that labor is not a blanket term. Different workers are treated differently. Different people have different, you know, social strata and classes into how they work. And thankfully, a lot of people took that as an opportunity to care a little bit more about hourly and wage employees in the service sector and how they got treated during COVID. I'd go that long route to get back to labor because when we start talking about labor and union labor specifically, it gets idealized a little bit too much. I'm for labor. I've said it multiple times. I'm from West Virginia. If there was ever a group of workers that needed a union, it was the coal miners. There's also not very many union coal miners left because of the industry. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, but we're going to take a big picture here because there's some lessons from that, that the auto workers that are currently on strike probably needs applied to that situation. How politicians treat labor unions, how labor unions treat the workers, and also an example out in Vegas of a labor union and what they're doing out there. Let's put all these together to try to get a bigger picture. Too often in the news media, we conflate things that are not the same. A labor union represents its workers, but the labor union is not the workers. Let me say that one more time real slow because this is something that folks in the news media, and I've been guilty of this too, just skip over this. A union represents its workers, but it is not the same thing as its workers. It can be in a properly run union with good leadership, good intention, accountability, transparency in its financing and what it's doing and its activities, that would be the ideal of a union. The problem is there are some unions that are not like that, where the union leadership makes a lot of money and makes a lot of money off their union membership and doesn't sometimes take care of their union membership the way they should while they get much more pay than their membership does and gets all these extra things and the union can sometimes suffer for it. We don't want to idealize anything because then we lose perspective and we lose accountability. A union can be a really good thing. A union that is not held accountable or that gets too far into things like politics and fundraising and money because we all know what happens to any organization, whether it's a union, the country, government, churches, your own home and personal finances. If you're not held accountable and you're not responsible with those finances, money can corrupt and money can ruin things. Unions rise and fall on leadership. And the leaderships of those unions is pretty apparent pretty quickly. A lot of the old big labor unions have fallen down. And I know our pro labor friends will say, well, it was, a, well, some of it, yes, the environment's changed. And some of it, yes, there's people that are against the unions. But a lot of it is a lot of people found a lot of those old line unions weren't doing real well. They didn't always have the union membership in mind. And they didn't know how to work with their companies in a non-parasitic fashion, where if the company dies and closes, it doesn't matter how good your union is anymore; you're still out in the cold. This is one area where our friends in Europe actually do it a little bit better than us. I think um, I know living in Germany and other areas, the relationship between unions and the companies are very, very different. Now it's a different system of government, so this isn't completely applicable. You can't just take it and drop it in America and it works. But there's some lessons to learn there. In fact. When Volkswagen came over and built a plant in the American South, they immediately welcomed in having a union. But they weren't used to the American-style union, especially the you know union, uh, United Auto Workers-style union that came in. And they were shocked at how adversarial they were. And they were shocked at how the negotiations went. And it was very um, tedious, and they went through a long process with that. And it eventually got voted down at that particular plant. But it really surprised the Volkswagen folks from Germany because they're like, well, we've always had great relationships with our unions. We don't understand this. A good union with good leadership has a symbiotic relationship with its company. Now, the company also has to have good leadership and also cannot be against its own employees. Again, that's idealized, right? You have a good company with good leadership that makes a profit and uses that profit to take care of its workers, not just its stockholders or whoever's in charge of the company. Too often in these debates with labor, we talk on idealized terms, bad company, good union, or folks on the right will say bad union, good company. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle and somewhere on that grayscale of real life, not the buzzwords and the idealized version of labor and unions and companies. But in a perfect world, yes, you would have a symbiotic relationship where the union works with the companies, the union membership protects their folks, the companies work with the unions. Everybody makes money and goes home. I said it over and over again when I was in management. Um, tell the guys all the time, I was like, what do you want to do here? You want to make money and go home happy or are we going to sit here and fuss? The goal is for everybody to make money, make a good living, get their benefits, take care of their families, take care of themselves, advance themselves in their careers if they so choose to do so. That's the goal. But sometimes that can't happen because the company's corrupt or the union's corrupt. All unions are not made the same. And everybody that talks about labor are not made the same. Let's take a couple of examples here. President Joe Biden went and walked the picket line at the UAW strikes. Auto workers are on strike. A lot of people had thoughts on that. Didn't really bother me. Joe Biden's been a pro-labor guy for all of his 50-year career. Didn't shock me in the least. It's an election year. He's running for re-election. That's kind of his bread and butter. And on a politically, you know, if I'm advising Biden, If I was giving them advice or on the campaign, that's exactly what I would have told him to do, because Joe Biden, that's his natural environment. So a lot of the gaffes and the problems we see, and he still said some silly things on the microphone, even during this event. But the video of him just glad handing people talking to the union, old union Joe, you know, from Pennsylvania, that stuff has always been something that plays well for him. And it's a good optic. And of course, it plays to his base. So, yeah, if I was advising him, I would have told him to do that. Bigger picture, though, there's a couple of things that brought me to mind. You know, let's go back to the fall. Right before Christmas, the railroad workers were striking or threatening to strike. They had voted to strike. Well, Joe Biden's administration came in working with Congress and stopped that because they didn't want the economic disruption of it. Was he pro-union then? Well, he was until you go to interrupt Christmas, which would have been a political problem for the president. Now, there's an argument for that, and we hashed it out at the time. You can go back and listen to it, but he didn't go walk that picket line. He shut down that strike with Congress and went forward. Now, the railroad workers were able to go back a couple months later and get what they want, but they had been multiple years getting to that point with their union and their union leadership to do that. One of my concerns with modern labor in America is if you have a union and the labor organization – and them and the government start deciding things like what happened with the railroad workers, now you got a problem because the workers are caught between a rock and a hard place and don't have anywhere to go for relief. So these things are not all the same. The railroad workers got treated differently than the UAW workers by the same pro-union president who went and walked a picket line. Pro-labor, yeah, on paper, but he also picked and chose what big labor he wanted to do. Donald Trump, by the way, went and gave a speech to what was supposed to be UAW workers. He talks a big game about union workers. And to be fair, in 2016, he became president because he flipped a lot of former or current blue collar, you know, those old blue dog labor Democrats in the Rust Belt areas and flipped them to him to vote for him. He also lost a lot of them in 2020, and that's why he didn't become president again. But he's had a track record of trying to do that. But he had an event. And then they went to the event and found out a lot of those people weren't even union folks at all, but they were just kind of there. Look, don't take words, take actions. Judge Joe Biden by his actions. Judge Donald Trump by his actions. Judge the labor unions by their actions. Judge the companies by their actions. Don't get caught on the buzzwords that just idealize everything. I'll give you another labor story that you need to pay attention to. Out in Vegas. I lived in Vegas. I know how powerful this union is. Culinary Workers Union voted for a strike. Give you an idea, there's about 18,000 UAW workers that are on strike right now. It's getting all the headlines. Culinary Workers Union is something like 40,000 strong, and it's actually probably more than that when you go. They may have had 18,000 people at the voting meeting. They had the Thomas and Mack arena completely full um, for the vote. There's not been a Culinary Union strike uh, in 40 years, and that's because most people understood. That it would be mutually assured destruction to have a strike in Vegas of the culinary union workers. That shuts down the hotels, that shuts down the casinos, that shuts down the restaurants, it shuts down pretty much everything. And then expedient it expands out because what happens is you get a lot of people. I'm one of them, I'll be up front, bias is on the table. Even if I'm not completely sold on big labor and some of the labor stuff going on, I wouldn't cross a picket line. I just couldn't do that. It's just something I wouldn't do. So you'd have even more people not working just because they're not going to want to cross the picket line, support, and or not be involved. This is a union that is very well run. This is a union that knows what they're doing. They know how to negotiate and do the brinksmanship without falling off the cliff. That's why they haven't had a strike in 40 years. They really pick their moment well here, out here. Again, unions, all strikes aren't the same. All unions aren't the same. you got to take these a piece at a time. F1 is coming to Vegas, the F1 uh, Racing League. This is one of the biggest things that's ever happened in Vegas. They're going to be there in in just under two months now. F1 is one of the biggest auto racing things in the world. It's much bigger than NASCAR on a worldwide stage. They're going to be in Vegas in less than two weeks. They're already doing the prep for it now. So threatening a strike before that and the Super Bowl's coming to Vegas in February. The preps are already underway for that, plus the normal tourist traffic. The Culinary Union really, really, really picked their spot perfectly because this is probably the most leverage they are going to have in a very, very long time. Vegas cannot afford to have a shutdown with F1, which they're trying to get to be a regular thing, and it's going to be a spectacular TV optic. And the Super Bowl coming, which is, of course, the biggest thing in America every year. So I suspect just getting the vote authorization strike, they didn't go on strike, they just authorized the strike for their uh, union leaders to call whenever they're ready to call it. I suspect just the threat of that and the fact that the union leaders have that in their pocket, they'll get that negotiation done now. They picked a good moment. They maximized their leverage. They got, I think it was over 90% of their uh, membership involved, unlike some of the railroad stuff where it was piecemeal and not completely um, solidarity there. The culinary union workers really knew what they were doing. Let's take one more labor example before we end this conversation. Again, not judging, just laying it out. The Teamsters Union is another one of those unions that have really fallen off. And it's amazing in America, we talk about the UAW, union labor is now somewhere down around 10% of all workers, I did bump up just a tick in the last year a little bit, but it's only about 10% now. The UAW alone used to be millions and millions of people. They now have less than a million auto workers that are unionized. And that's just, that's not even the ones on strike. The public sector has far more unions than the manufacturing or other sectors. Let's go to trucking for a minute. The Teamsters Union had two things happen within a couple of weeks of each other that are very telling of the state of union labor in America and labor in general. They got their huge contract from UPS, and their workers got a wonderful raise. They got an increase in uh, benefits. Anything They got almost everything they wanted from the UPS. But their membership at Yellow Freight, almost 30,000 strong, got nothing. Because the company closed. Now, the company didn't close because of the union. That company had been, I worked in trucking, folks. We knew when I was working um, for a competitor to Yellow, uh, we knew 10 years ago, 12 years ago. They've known for 20 years Yellow was on its last leg. Um, It was always a horribly ran company. They Back uh, about 10, 12 years ago, they did a horrible, um, just some really bad business stuff. I don't want to get into the weeds on it but yellow was a huge company it was a union company though 30,000 of those union people just straight up lost their jobs because that company went in bankruptcy it went into liquidation they just got rid of the whole thing they were done so they were you got guys that worked 20 30 years no benefits no nothing retirement gone gone another example though the same union that the UPS guys had but the company wasn't accountable the union and the company had had a very adversarial relationship for years and years and years. And by the way, I didn't agree with everything that union did for 10 or 15, 20 years leading up to it, but I absolutely agree with them. They shouldn't, they had just had enough and put up with it and said, no, you, we can't bail this company out anymore. It's poorly run. That's part of what a union does, too. But the same union reps, one company got their bag. And the other one got absolutely nothing and out in the cold with not enough jobs to keep up with them. They're going to have to go other places, probably not for what they were making before. When we see these union and labor headlines, there's two things we got to keep in mind. One is these are people. Labor issues, union issues, government interference in labor. These are people issues. That's why I'm harping on this government shutdown. Those are real people that are missing paychecks. Those are real beneficiaries missing paychecks. Keep that in mind first before you go to the politics and the policy of it. And yes, I know people use that for leverage, but it's still people missing paychecks, and that ain't right. You have a right in America to unionize, to collectively bargain, to be a member of a union. You should have that right. It is a right that is important to protect workers. But at the same time, that union needs to be accountable, needs to have good leadership, it needs to keep its membership as the core function of its union, not just obtaining political power for the people that get the big checks at the top. Same way with a company. Your company needs to be accountable. You need to be transparent in what that company is doing. And companies need to treat its workers right. That's why unions have a role. That's why the government has an oversight role in the company to make sure companies are treating their workers right. We need to make sure we take these stories one at a time and not just idealize the buzzwords of companies. Oh, all companies are good. Profits good. It can be properly handled. All unions are good. Unions protect the workers. They can when properly run. There are a lot of union workers or former union workers that are out of work right now because the company shut down or because the unions mishandled things. There's a lot of public sector pension funds that are in trouble right now. We'll talk about that some other time. Don't, idealize things that are so important that they do reflect on a lot of people getting their very next paycheck. We're going to talk about issues. We're going to turn down the noise. It's important to discuss these matters in these ways so that when you do have a strike or a work stoppage, you have the full perspective of, yes, the workers have a claim here. Yes, the workers have a grievance here. No, the government, like the railroad workers, no, the government shouldn't shut them down just because it's inconvenient to everybody else because they had a right to do this that's when you get into the sticky weeds on this stuff turn the buzzwords down hold people accountable no matter who they are what they are or what they claim to be for And most of this stuff will work itself out pretty well we'll talk more about this in the future because this issue is never going to go away we'll do more hurt tell right after this Ah, Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, not all of you, not you specifically, but some folks out there seem to think I'm being too hard on the GOP presidential nomination field when I'm criticizing them. Well, let me give you a data point. There's certain things, even in the world of media, where it's all smoke and mirrors, it's all narratives, it's all people posing and preening, folks pretending to be various different things. Even in media, there's a couple things that are true. Ratings for the most part are true. They don't lie. People watched it or it didn't. How advertisers spend their money for those ratings, which is what those you know, ad buys are based off the ratings, that doesn't lie. Money usually talks, even in politics. Follow the money. How often do we say that on this program? Follow the money. You'll find out real quick who's really beholden to who, who's spending money on who, who works for, and or is owned by, and or is advocating for who. So when it comes to the GOP presidential primary debate, the first one and the second one, the money talks, this is from um, Max Tani at the Semaphore, we will link to it, HerdTell.substack.com. make sure you get the free subscription there, so you get all the notes, everything we're doing with both Hertel and my writing and media. Advertisers from Semaphore paid a premium for airtime during the first Republican presidential debate on Fox News, but it looks like they'll be getting a major discount during round two on Wednesday night. This was, of course, before we covered it. We also did our full uh, review of that uh, absolute cluster of a debate. You can hear that on the previous episode of Heard Tell. Semaphore reviewed the rates the network shared with one prospective ad buyer for both first and second GOP primary debate for the first bait the cost of single 30-second spot ads topped $495,000. That's pretty premium when it comes to ad buys. But the second 30-second spot, the same spot for Wednesday night's contest, would cost just over 200000 more than half off. Another ad buyer did not share the rates for ads running during the first debate, but confirmed char- Fox was charging two twenty-five k for 30-second ads during the broadcast and immediately after and $125,000 for a 30-second spot during the broadcast before it. The drop in ad rates, this is a semaphore, reflects the drop-off in drama in the 2024 primary. There was plenty of incentive for advertisers to buy ads in the first contest, which helped drive record prices for airtime during the 2020 debate. This is a parenthetical. ABC charged a reported $375,000 for a 30-second ad buy. It was the first time for audiences to see many of these candidates. And until just days before the debate, former President Trump was still publicly toying with the idea of showing up. As non-Trump Republican candidates fail to gain traction in the polls, there's less incentive for advertisers to pay for the same record rates as the first contest. Sans Trump, this is a quote, these debates just aren't big time TV because the GOP primary race has become a snoozer, one ad buyer told Semaphore. A source familiar with the Fox News debate acknowledged that there was a decline in ad rates between the first and second debate, but told Semaphore that the prices were, quote, not accurate in terms of what was actually being sold, end quote. The source added the demand for ads had risen after the first debate, outperformed ratings expectations, and that the network had a divisive, diverse, not divisive, the debate was divisive. This is diverse. My bad. Array of advertisers lined up, including those in technology, entertainment, finance, So what does this all mean? It means my criticism that people aren't paying attention to this is not only valid, it's showing up where it really matters, in the ratings, in the ad buys, in the business end of this thing. Folks just aren't as interested. They got one good look and bumped the rating up higher than folks thought it would be. And the second disaster piece, I think, will further denigrate this field's thing. Plus, there's just the big elephant in the room of The poll numbers aren't moving. None of these people are gaining on Donald Trump. And if you don't gain on Donald Trump, everybody's just kind of wasting their time here. Because that's the goal, right? If you're running for president in the GOP party, you got to knock off Trump to get the nomination. None of them seem particularly willing, able, or frankly, how to have a clue how to do that. And the money proves it. More Hertel right after this. back to Her Tell. We have missed this person, our good friend David Clement, back on the program. He does all sorts of things, co-hosts Consumer Choice Radio, which we get to be a stable mate down on the Carolina Coastal Network. He's North American Affairs Manager for Consumer Choice, been a longtime friend of the program. David, great to have you back on, my friend. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> I hate to waylay you, but I just don't. In the last, let's say, six weeks, the Canadian news cycle has been rather interesting, um, yes. you had, I don't know if it was cosmic or whatever, but it seems like everything since the Trudeau divorce has just been like, what the hell? So you had the Trudeau divorce. Now you have this thing with India where you're pulling diplomats. Uh, Trudeau's government is accusing India of basically plotting an assassination on Canadian soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a Indian, uh, former minister who accused, uh, uh, Trudeau of fleeing India in a plane full of cocaine. Um that's all good and fun and then this past week we had the incident in parliament that resulted in the resigning of the speaker of the House of Parliament for Canada because they praised a Waffen SS soldier in something that was supposed to be for the Jewish Ukrainian president that was visiting what the hell's wrong with Canada right now uh, it it seems like we have a
2: government in like it's dying death rows, where it just starts to flail around and all of the cracks are being exposed and all of the incompetence is being exposed all at once. And for a government um, that I think was best described uh, as a PR marketing firm running a G7 nation, um, they are in, in above their heads right now. Um, it almost feels Trump esque, where you think that scandal a is going to carry the day and you just let it sit for 24 hours and then bam, something else comes out and then they try and respond to that. And that turns out not to be true. And it just, it's, um, the, I, I don't feel, uh, I'm not envious of, of whoever's doing crisis comms right now in Ottawa.
1: No, you wouldn't need to. The last time we talked to you, we talked about this. We've talked to some of our other Canadian contributors about it. There's a real inertia problem with the Trudeau government. They've been there a long time. He's been in power for a while. The core group that was originally there, almost none of them are there in the cabinet or the staff or the Mm – he just did another shakeup. You just mentioned the comm shop. They just had a shakeup not four or five weeks ago saying, well, we got to reset our comms, and they got rid of everybody, got all the new people in. Good luck with the new job, folks, because you got to mess yeah. with me. Some of this is coincidental, but the thing about coincidences is, is, if you go back far enough, there is this just this inertia thing. It's like you said, it's like this feels like a government that was really big on the perception and optics and the Trudeau name and the brand and all that sort of thing, and frankly, a lack of other options, and we can talk about the conservative party, not having a viable contender to Trudeau some other time. It feels like live by the PR, die by the PR. And now just everything's converging at once. Is that kind of a fair way to lay out the big picture?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and whether or not that's a government that got too comfortable. Um, I think that that's probably accurate. They just got too comfortable. Um, Feeling as though they had it in the bag and it was just business as usual, and I don't think that they were really prepared, uh, or their assessment of Pierre Polyev as conservative leader ended up being accurate because all of the all of the usual sticking points that the liberals had used effectively against the conservatives are not working and we know this from the polls because depending on which poll you're looking at the conservatives are up by as much as 12 points Um, and on most polls right now they're veering into majority government territory Um, and so the usual uh, shots that the liberals would fire at the conservatives have not stuck And uh, they seem not to know what to do. Uh, And then all of these scandals makes it worse. And they're on the defense 24-7.
1: Yeah, David Clement joining us from up in Canada, Consumer Choice Center, our very good friends over there. You're one of the ones that kind of taught me about this uh, when it comes to Canadian politics and especially Canadian news media covering politics. Your line has always been the thing with the CBC and Canadian politics is just don't be America. Well, you just said it. This feels really Trumpian. This feels really messy. Canadians are the nice folks. Eh? You're the people that j- we're just going to go have a Molson and work it out. We're not going to yell. We're not going to. This is ugly. This is embarrassing. You see a lot of Canadian talking heads on social media, just kind of privately talking about like this. This is really embarrassing stuff, this string of events and how this is going. If that's the ethos, don't be like America. And you're already calling it Trumpian. That's got to kind of sting and hurt. That's like a shock to the system thing that transcends just the politics and the policy and the individual incidences, isn't it? It is. It is. And ironically, one of
2: the kind of uh, unspoken things in Canadian politics, which we've talked about before, is like a a soft anti-Americanism. And even in trying to PR manage some of the disasters that are going on. So like another one, which you hadn't mentioned yet, but it, but is, um, was a big issue was um, protests uh, in regards to pronouns and gender policy in school, because there's this growing rift between largely conservative premiers, um, our version of a governor uh, who are enacting policies that say, okay, any changes, for minors up to, let's say, 16, we have to involve the parents here. We have to – if a kid wants to change their name or their gender, we have to inform the parents. And there's these huge rallies um, basically opposing uh, the way things were or in favor of these kind of parental consent laws. And Trudeau came out and called the the people who support these laws divisive and big, bigoted and homophobic, and um, – And that's – and and said that they were being brainwashed by uh, American politics and American right-wing news. Um, And usually that would work. Usually that would be like, ooh, is this too American? Um, But just two days ago, yesterday, I think it was, the the Muslim Association of Canada um, came out and asked for an apology from Trudeau. Uh, for his comments about those who are concerned about gender topics in school. Um, And so all around, it's a shock to the system because it's something that we probably wrongfully pat ourselves on the back for in terms of not being American. Um, And now even the attempts to change the debate and, high, and and frame the opposition as, ooh, that feels too American, aren't working. Um, and you have major diaspora groups in Canada offended that the, the prime minister is essentially saying that they're brainwashed by Fox News or Tucker Carlson or who, whoever else is talking about those things in the U.S.,
1: David Clement joining us. Let's walk through a couple of these crises individually, though, because we don't want to lump them all together. They deserve thing. The India one is really, really ugly. You have, you know, when you start jerking senior level diplomats and hurling personal insults, this is complicated, though. For people that aren't familiar with Canada, you just talked about the diaspora groups this is kind of in a fight between diaspora groups and it's spilled over to everything else. Just give the lay of land a little bit because you have, you know, Hindu nationalism, which is a really mm-hmm. complicated issue. That's really hard to understand if you're not involved in it.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I don't want to get into the weeds on that too much, but you've got them. You have a large sick population that has, um, you know, for a minority group, a considerable political presence in Canada that's involved here, The the India thing. This is not just an international thing in the press. This is a very real thing in Canada that needs to get cleaned up quick and they don't seem to have a way to clean it up quick.
2: No, this is one of the this is. Largely, if it's true, is bigger than the two Michaels being detained in China for 900 days or however long it was. Um, So long story short, there is a very prominent uh, Sikh population in Canada. Um, They are um, very concentrated in certain writings or congressional districts for American listeners. Um, And so they have a a, a strong uh, voting block presence um, in these writings. So an example would be in some of these writings, when we have an election, in many instances, all the candidates on the ballot will be members from that community um, because the, the concentration is so high there. Um, and with that that diaspora, there is a group of of Kalistani separatists, if that's what we would like to call them, whom want a separate state uh, in India and advocate for separation. Um, the... Indian government views those people very negatively, um, and regularly refers to as to, to them as terrorists. Um, and the scandal is that one prominent Sikh independence activist um, was killed. He was gunned down outside of um, the temple, I believe is the correct term uh, that he led in BC, and the prime minister has inferred uh, that there is strong intelligence to suggest that India was involved. Um, And so that would be a foreign country murdering who was a Canadian citizen uh, on Canadian soil, which is a huge accusation. It's a huge diplomatic crisis. If it's true, it's a huge diplomatic crisis. If it's not true, Um, It's a disaster all all the way around, and we've been having this national conversation about Chinese interference, and there are two aspects to this. One, the accusation, but two, the realization that how could this have happened? How could this happen in Canada? How could our security agencies or the the organizations that are supposed to keep Canadians safe uh, fail so epically? Um in regards to this particular independence activist. And so it is a it is a disaster all around. There's more to that story in terms of the press and why Trudeau uh, made the statement that he made. Um, just not to ramble on too much, but the Globe and Mail, Canada's largest national paper, had the story. They approached the PMO's office and uh the Prime Minister's office asked for a week. Before the Globe published, I think the Globe begrudgingly said yes, given the geopolitical consequences of that. And then the next day, Trudeau said in the House of Commons, um, the accusation, um, seemingly to get ahead of the story. Um, So, yeah, just a nightmare
1: all around. Now, here's the two parts to this. And again, I don't want to get into all the details because it's complicated. We're going to link to a couple things if you really want to get in the weeds on this. It'll be on the Substack, Hurtel.Substack.com. Please read the background on this because it's very complicated. It's very touchy, a lot of cultural, racial, and yeah. international issues here. The two things that make this bad is one is it's on video. They've got that yeah. whole, and it's clear. Look, this isn't some random gum and walked up. This is coordinated. These are people that knew what they were doing. This was an assassination. You can tell. It was a hit. Yeah, it was a hit. There was two cars. There was multiple people. It's on video. Like anybody that's ever seen an action movie watches that on video and you immediately know what that is. That's one reason this is so bad. It's on video. Two is for Trudeau to go to the commons practically immediately. I think it was the day after or two days after and to level that accusation. We talked to some of our other you better have the goods if you're going to do that. That, mm-hmm. that, I think that threw everybody off. I know even the American government issued a statement. It's like, okay, we need a full investigation because for you mm-hmm. to come out that strong, that fast, right off the bat, mm-hmm. immediately, he better have that to go there. Was that the feeling in Canada too? Were people taking them back? Just the, and again, this is a Trudeau government. We've got a history now over the summer of some really bad calm decisions. Mm-hmm. Who made that call to go that public and that hard, that fast on this? Because that, that took me aback, and I'm somebody that cover, follows a lot of foreign policy. I'm like, whoa, you better have that one if you're going to go there.
2: Yeah, it's um, – I, I think – now, if your modus operandi for government is how do we win the news cycle or how do we minimize damage? then it makes sense, right? The Globe and Mail had them. They were done. And they figured, okay, well, the Globe can publish another damaging foreign interference story uh, because they were the ones who broke all of the the China stories for the most part. Um, Or we can try and get ahead of it. And they tried to, to get ahead of it, and now we have a major diplomatic crisis. India has suspended visa services in Canada Um, which may not sound like a big deal, but you have well more than a million um, Indian Canadians who regularly travel um, to India, um, some of whom who have an Indian passport, many of them who are children of um, Indian immigrants who wouldn't, who can't, their vacations are now canceled, they're in limbo, those people also vote. um, So there are other consequences here too. So yeah, they were in a bit of a no-win situation, Um, but in the same sense, it's kind of their own doing because once you would have, you would assume that once you have that intelligence and you're confident enough to make that statement in the House of Commons, you shouldn't need the Globe and Mail to push you into the corner to talk about it. As soon as you, as soon as that comes across your desk you immediately elevate escalate and react accordingly and you need to have the perspective that politics be damned it doesn't matter whom we're going to bother or what the the local implications of this may be we're going to do the right thing and the right thing here is if that's true it's shutting down consulates or embassies it's expelling diplomats And it's treating this with the seriousness that it deserves um, rather than having a newspaper force you into a corner and then getting caught flat footed.
1: Yeah, it was my initial reaction. And I'm an outsider here, but my initial reaction was, oh, this is a media strategy, not a foreign relations strategy. And this Mm -hmm. is not a good idea, because even if it's true you would back-channel that to the to the Indian government and go, hey, we know you did this. How are we going to address this to cool this off? Yeah. It felt like a media strategy without a geopolitical strategy behind it. We'll see how it plays out. But that's just how it hit me as somebody that, you know, halfway pays attention to this sort of thing. Yeah. It, it really hit me like I, I really couldn't believe he was saying it, frankly.
2: It, it felt rushed. Yeah. And the fact that it felt
1: rushed means they didn't give it the – critical review it deserved and not to interrupt you that was not a normal trudeau speech trudeau has a real cadence to his speeches he mm-hmm. has a way he fire because he formats him and then he goes back at the end and does it again in french and that sort that wasn't his normal cadence that's not how he normally talks he did not look comfortable mm-hmm. i mean this is just observations watch that whole thing just felt wrong looked wrong sounded wrong
2: yeah oh it, it, it you you felt the pressure. Right? You could feel the pressure when he was speaking about it. Um a little bit like he was out of his element. Right? It wasn't it wasn't as polished and prepared and it didn't have the the PR scrubbing necessarily that it that his remarks usually do. Um yeah, so I mean and that's just one. <laughs> that's just one disaster. <laughs>
3: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
1: One that got headlines everywhere. Um, David Clement up in Canada with Consumer Choice Center joining us. This hunka thing in the parliament was Zelensky there. A lot of people jumped on this. The people in the room probably had no idea who this guy was. They were just taking it at face value and everybody stands and applauds. plot. So I'll set that aside because unless you were Googling it in real time, which nobody was because you're not pulling your no. phone out right then. 99% of the people in that room had no idea how it was. However, the way these things work in government, the layers it would have to go through to have that kind of a recognition in that setting during what is essentially in all practical purposes, a state visit by a foreign head of dignitary, by the way, probably the most noticeable foreign head of state in the world right now. In a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. you can't get that wrong. This is inexcusable. There's no way this happened. I know the speaker of parliament, you know, rightly fell on his sword, took the blame and went off. There's a lot of heads that ought to roll for something like that to happen. Do we have rolling heads? Is there investigation? How in the world did that happen? Because there's no way that should happen.
2: Yeah. So the House of Commons is investigating now in terms of procedures. And there there have been some funny – like, this is where, like, okay – if we're going to govern by the rules of PR, this is where you see the liberals consistently fail. Um, So right after it happened, the next day, Karina Gold, who happens to be my member of parliament, um, looked to seek a snap motion on on the floor to erase the speaker's remarks and to erase all audio and video of the acknowledgement of this soldier which is unprecedented right we have something called hansard which is like the official record of everything spoken good at that um and it would have only gone through if it was a unanimous yes and uh the the pr shop on it was well maybe we can back the conservatives into a corner and um and see them putting no and then accuse them of of Something nefarious, and they tried to do that. And obviously, the conservatives voted no because it was, "Why would we erase this? It's your mistake. You're just this is you're just trying to erase your faux pas. We don't want this to happen again." Um, and then the second one, which happened, was Pierre Polyev, the leader of the conservatives, had suggested like maybe there needs to be some sort of vetting process for people we're going to honor as guests. And the Trudeau response was, Mr. Polyev wants every person to enter into the House of Commons to be vetted by the RCMP. That's egregious and violates our liberties. It's like, no, we're not asking for guests to be vet or for visitors to be vetted. But one would hope that if you're going to honor someone in the gallery, uh, when a foreign head of state is present, and a foreign head of state who is being invaded and has been attempted and, and attempts at his life have been made um, that you're going to do some due diligence on whom you're going to honor. Um, and that one failed. And so here we are for me, the, the, the official story is it was Anthony wrote decision. He was, honoring a request from a constituent i think it was the grandson of the soldier and whoops like we just made a mistake um i i don't i i cannot fathom it's either I, that level of incompetence is just so extreme imagine in like the state of the union president biden honors a ukrainian soldier who fought against the russians in world war ii whoops he served fighting against the russians in the ss he was a nazi like that's that would never happen you pay people enough money to avoid those mistakes um and so either they just across the board everyone was sleeping at the wheel um or something else happened and they thought that they could brush it under the rug it's probably more gross incompetence but that is concerning that's like that level of failure of checks and balances or review is uh i mean you've seen it; it's headlines everywhere
1: yeah it was a really bad look and imagine Zelensky, who that's the russian propaganda line about him and his country is they're all a bunch of nazis and you literally put a nazi up across from him that's pretty much worst case scenario for them yep really bad stuff David Clement joining us. Underneath all of this, though, man, it feels like we've been talking about this for a couple of years, but what's really the problems in Canada underneath this are economic concerns, mm-hmm. the housing crisis concerns. There's now a commercial real estate crisis that really popped off in the last, eh, probably since April, Mayish time timeframe, I think, is when this really got sort of ugly that is now affecting businesses And you've got the media crisis where there's a real debate in in Canada about what kind of a media they're going to have. What's the role of the CBC? What's the Mm -hmm. role of independent media? Those three things don't seem like they're super aligned, but they're kind of all combining at the same time of, hey, we've had this problem for years. We don't know how to cover it. We don't know how to talk about it, but everybody feels it in their everyday life. And that's underlying all this other political stuff, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it is. And it's... (sighs) You'd almost, we'd have to sit down for like a Joe Rogan style three hours to really get to the root of like all of these faux pas and how it's like everything is converging at one time. And you have all of these crises, which would have otherwise been above the fold front page for weeks that are now eclipsed by um, other issues because something else that's just as big or bigger pops up just a few days later. And so, essentially, the government has the Online News Act. They want um, they want tech companies to pay every time you share a news link on Facebook, um, which is has the relationship backwards because Meta, Facebook, Instagram, um, essentially provide free leads to newspapers and free views. They drive traffic there, but in response... Facebook meta said, okay, we're not going to allow Canadians to share news anymore. Reason they're complying with the law, the laws that you have to pay if links are shared, they're saying, okay, well, we just won't let the links be shared. So you have this complete. Now news is stripped away from Facebook and Instagram. Um, they're trying to do the same thing with Google. It's to be determined where that goes, but it is possible that we have a future where Canadian news is not accessible via Google, if Google takes the same road as, as, um, as, um, as Meta. And so you'd have a scenario, essentially, we'd be going back to like a digital version of 1996, where the only way to see the news is to watch it on TV or to directly go to the website, uh, like the, the online version of physically picking up a paper um, which is a huge problem. I mean, for if you want media literacy and you want people to be informed and engaged, especially if you lose Google, you, you want to know what's going on about the wildfires in BC, and the only coverage you're going to get in Google is U.S. coverage because all of the Canadian links are blocked because to comply with the law, Google has to stop allowing for Canadian links to to show up. Um, so that in and of itself is a huge disaster that's kind of fallen by the wayside media or focus wise just because there's other bigger things going on um but we have that under the the umbrella of a huge national housing <laughs> crisis at the same time and skyrocketing rents and people feeling like they're getting poor by the day um uh, and so it, it just feels like the perfect storm of of toxic policies or toxic decisions um Coming to a head all at once.
1: David Clement joining us. Um, For those of us, I'm sure we have Canadian audience. I've seen the numbers. Appreciate y'all. For the American audience, the international audience, give us one or two things in the headlines that are coming up. Obviously, the Trudeau government, this is going to go for a while because we're not really super close to a general election or anything like that. At least we don't think so. But what's a couple things that we should be watching in the headlines to peek through of what's going on in Canada right now as we start to head through fall into the winter?
2: Oh, okay. Uh, That's a good one.
1: Where to start? Um, I'm not saying y'all get cranky and things happen in the wintertime up in Canada, but y'all start staying indoors, funky things happen, my friend.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say the pronoun debate is picking up because it's fractured. Um, You have a a, a federal government or, let's say, folks on the left who have largely cast Anyone with any type of concern as a bigot, um, and I, I find myself more on the left of the pronoun debate um, than than most people. But the problem is, is that it's at odds with what how Canadians feel. And so when Trudeau comes out and says anybody who disagrees with this, or et cetera, is bigoted and homophobic. Uh, something like 68%, I think, of Canadians feel that there should be some form of parental consent in regards to name or pronoun changes for, for minors in terms of when they're in school. Um, so that one is really going to, uh, really going to take root and, and will be, depending on what the other scandals are, a big national discussion. Um, crime is another one the liberals were kind of pushed into a corner to enact bail reform. Um, So not letting repeat violent offenders out on bail. Um, And I would say that's another one. And then the immigration discussion, we've had the largest population boom since uh, 1957, largely, almost exclusively driven by immigration. And, That invokes all sorts of tensions. Um, The housing crisis and the availability of houses and rental prices going up. If you're not building enough uh, homes and you have more people chasing the same supply of units, prices obviously go up. That's really putting a squeeze on people. I don't fall into the camp where I blame immigration for that. Um, I'm a housing maximalist where I'm like, let's just start building homes. I I want these people here, so let's make sure we just rapidly build or rezone properties um, to to cover that gap. Um, And, yeah, I I would say that that's probably the big national headlines um, that will carry the day outside of the ones we've already talked about, which feels like an administration's worth of issues (laughs) all in one.
1: Yeah, David Clement joining us. All right, let me give you an easy one because we were beating up on our Canadian friends a little bit and we've got our own hot mess so we kind of like to point fingers at other folks from time to time. How's your personal war to make sure Canada continues their long and proud tradition of drinking beer going up there, my friend?
2: Oh, it's going. It's going. Yeah, I've been dealing with some, some nefarious research that says Canadians or anyone really in general shouldn't have more than two drinks per week. Um, Essentially, Health Canada funded a report uh, from the Canadian Centre for Substance Use and Addiction. Um, It turns out that the people who wrote that report are members of Movendi, which is a 200-year-old prohibitionist turned temperance uh, organization. So the equivalent that would make sense for a lot of people would be if the government asked, well, what's the appropriate amount of meat consumption? Um and it turns out that the government paid a bunch of strident vegans uh, who are affiliated with PETA uh, to write the report and gerrymander the data um, that's essentially what's happened with alcohol um, is exactly that and so I've been doing some work on just highlighting how how uh, how junk sciencey it is um to approach health policy in that way um but also how hypocritical it is from a harm reduction perspective because like an example would be in bc it's decriminalized to buy and consume crack or meth or heroin for that matter um and so we have we take a harm reduction approach there but we're going to lecture people if they have that third beer in a week um so, yeah, it's just a disaster all around.
1: It's funny because I'm all for harm reduction programs, by the way, but it's really funny that you push those and then don't let people drink. It's like, really? That just that just feels hypocritical, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, David Clement, touchy issues, stuff we really need to keep an eye on, both above and below the border. Look, I've been telling a lot of folks that don't follow a lot. Of, look, India is not only the largest democracy on Earth, it either mm-hmm. already has or is getting ready to surpass China as the largest country on Earth. And it's yeah. far less economically developed. It's about ready to explode in importance, both economically and geopolitically. you got to pay attention to what's going on in India. And we need to make sure we keep that allyship nice and strong. Canada's not doing great on that right at the moment. America's no. doing a little better. But it's an important friendship, especially when you look at that part of the world and what's getting ready to happen. My friend, let folks know what you got going on. Tell them about the Consumer Choice Center, what you've got going, how they can find you, and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again.
2: Yeah, consumerchoicecenter.org uh, is our website. You can see everything we're working on. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Clement Liberty, uh, where you'll see all the latest and all my ramblings and rants on everything that irritates me on a day to day basis.
1: Which, which you're not having to go looking for it right now, man. It's finding no. you is my, uh, my old it's name. Which say, the trouble's coming whether we want it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is gift wrapped. So, um,
2: yeah, thank you again for, for having me on. Always a pleasure.
1: Yeah, we'll keep getting you back. You do good work, sir. David Coleman up in Canada. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or even on some podcasts over in India, you folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you HerdTel Show, or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do. HerdTel.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice-on-Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from yonder and home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Herdtail.substack.com. we sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media, Herdtail Show on the Twitter for For the Fires, my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X, but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Herdtail. All the music on her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the her Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom. Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.